You know that TV commercial for Wendy's from the 80s? The granny characters admire a giant hamburger bun. They open it up and one asks, For those who listen to the show because of the word technology in its subtitle, I want to share up front that this is one of those episodes that's about other things. I don't want to leave you wondering where's the beef, but I'd argue that this conversation is also about digital learning at the same time. It's about all learning. I often ask myself the question, as an advocate for learning with technology, as a learning designer considering how we create real pathways for young people into STEM and computing futures, what is my responsibility as an education leader to making social justice and equity a focal point of my practice? Actually, that's most of the question. The rest is a truth that a lot of you listening may have too. I'll rephrase, as an advocate and education leader who is white and is male, and whose work almost always takes place outside of my own community, I ask, what is my responsibility? We're not doing the work if we're not asking the question, in my opinion. Dr. Gretchen gibbons Generet is a researcher educator on issues of teacher professional development, educational leadership, and cultural diversity. An associate professor in the School of Education at Duquesne University, Gretchen is the director of the University Council for Educational Administration Center for Educational Leadership and Social Justice. Her teaching and research are designed to enhance the skills and habits of mind necessary for educators to effectively teach students from diverse populations. During our chat, Gretchen shares her own personal narrative and talks about how each of us has a story that needs to be explored as preparation and proper framing for the work we endeavor to do. I learned so much from my chat with her. I hope you do too. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about the promise and reality of learning with technology. I'm Mark Lesser. Hello. Gretchen, how are you? It's Mark. Hi, Mark. How are you? I'm doing great. As I might have described to you when we first talked, I do a fair amount of uh, homework for these conversations. And um, and so I it is so nice to talk to you in part because uh, by the time I get to talk to somebody, I have uh, I have done all of the the uh, (laughs) as as much. Uh, internet stalking as is, uh, professionally, uh, you know, within, within bounds. And, uh, you know, it's so nice to, to get to talk to somebody once you've, you've already, um, seen a little bit of their work and, and done some reading and, um, you, you've really, you said that the word mindful earlier and, um, you know, uh, one of the things that from, you know, this is very, very much up your alley is um, mm-hmm. a few episodes into this show. One of the things that I got really um, honest about both with myself and people who are listening was uh, mm-hmm. that this show is as much, uh, if not more about my learning than it is uh, mm. about anything else. And and I didn't necessarily go into it um, knowing that it would be, but, uh, but I learned mm-hmm. very quickly, uh, that it, that it was. And so right. much of that was about, um, you know, we don't get to approach 
conversations in a professional context as, as, as mindfully as, um, I tend to with these. And so it's an amazing learning tool because I get to do my homework and really think about, um, what, what is the conversation that I want to have with this person? And, and, um, and then, uh, always there is that little bit of extra room I've learned Uh for the things that are going to surprise me, which is, um, which is also kind of always the case that, that yeah. no matter how much I prepare, there's always, um, you know, n- nice surprises usually and, and places where the conversation goes that, um, I, I couldn't have anticipated. So, right, um, right. A, lot, a lot like any, any good learning, I guess. Um, so Gretchen, thank you so much for doing this. I am really grateful for your time and, and for your expertise. I have done, uh, lots of, uh, watching of your lectures and talks over the last, uh, couple of weeks. I've done some reading. Um, part of the reason for that is that obviously I, I want to know, um, what the best conversation for the audience of this show, uh, is going to be anytime, uh, I've, I've been, uh, turned on to a professional who, uh, might add dimension to the, to the broader conversation. And, and, um, so I've done that and I have so many questions for you. I want to start at, at sort of the, the basics, um, just to Mm -hmm. take a moment and tell me a little bit about your work specifically is in, uh, you're doing a lot of work in, in training education leadership and working with education practitioners. And, um, I think for a lot of folks, especially either for those who are in informal settings or for parents or folks who are outside of the little bubble that you and I live in of, um, of education work. Um, I, mm-hmm. I don't think everybody knows that there is, uh, uh, such an expertise as the one that you have. They're lucky if they do, mm-hmm. but, um, but tell us about your expertise. And I'm, I'm really interested to know, um, at what point in your education, this started to become a pathway for you. Oh, wow. So, you know, I, um, kind of followed uh, my work and the trajectory of my work by assessing the needs. And um, I think leadership as a quote-unquote field, as a, as a field of study, um, came about um, by chance. And, and I say that um, with lots of... Um, honesty and authenticity, I became a, a professor in part because I wanted to change education and I wanted people to have uh, different experiences than my own, which uh, as a young student, I understood myself to be an outlier, you know, someone who uh, enjoyed school, but whose experiences weren't centered in schools. Um, someone who um, whose parents were younger and had less of a knowledge of the system than others, uh, but whose parents were very involved. 
uh, and loving uh, in my own upbringing and my caretaking. And so I wanted to always um, make sure that students like myself had opportunities that all students had. Mm. And so for me, that was about telling the stories behind my own uh, schooling experiences, uh, the stories of my mother, uh, the stories of my grandparents in education. And so I um, started doing narrative work as a part of my research. And what I learned was that uh, embedded in those stories were stories of leadership about how to be courageous, about how to talk about education in formal and informal settings, about how to talk about curriculum as a um, community experience, about curriculum as a plan of action uh, that didn't always look like what was within the textbook. And so leadership became uh, something that was broadly defined and not just narrowly focused within a discipline. And so um, what I learned about leadership is that there are lots of different stories of it. And what we can learn from those stories greatly impacts our ability to serve students and our ability to uh, be inclusive in our practices. Um, And I think it also allows us to... um, and let me think of another one. I would say exhale, right? Um, because so often we only think of leaders as being certain uh, people, certain experiences, right? And there's lots of weight put on um, leaders, right? And I, again, I just say that as air quotes. But one of the things that um, most impresses me about leaders is that all of us have the ability and the capacity to be leaders. And Ella Baker has a quote, and I'm sure I'm going to mess this up a little bit, but she basically said, strong people don't need, don't always need strong leaders because within themselves, they're able to uh, find leadership that makes sense to them. And so um, I think, Leadership is a natural path when you're in education that we all have to find the leader within ourselves and work from our position uh, as leaders, as people who know, people who have something to offer. So um, that's sort of how I approach leadership. And so the the biggest, um, I think it's an important distinction that, that uh, to make that we're uh, the biggest part of your work has been um, in helping educators uh, in building their own leadership in the context of the work that they do. It's not necessarily that um, you're teaching educators how to teach leadership, uh, or is it? Right. No, well, no. So I'm helping educators recognize that within them, uh, within themselves, is the potential to lead. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm working with a classroom teacher who says, oh, I cannot offer a suggestion to the principal because that's what leaders do, or it's not my role because that's a leadership role, 
Um, and so what I would say to teachers is that you have to lead from your classroom. Mm. Right? You know your students. You are closer to your students' parents. So how do you see yourself as a leader from that space? And how does that positively uh, impact how the principal is able to lead from the building, right? Or the superintendent is able to lead from the district. So I, I think of it as um, we have to lead from the spaces where we uh, occupy and that if we don't think of ourselves as leaders, then we oftentimes don't operate from the position of knowing in the same ways. Hmm. Yeah. It it makes so much sense. Um, I don't, we don't have time um, to talk extensively about the narratives that um, mm. you've talked really eloquently about in um, mm -hmm. a couple of lectures that I was able to find on YouTube and that I will mm. uh, link to um, in the show notes for this, this conversation. But um, I do, I do want to give um, a little bit of room for the, not just your um, air quoting to sort of backstory. Uh, I'm less interested mm -hmm. in the backstory and I'm more interested in the part you get to in a, one of your um, lectures that I found in uh, 2012, you talk about your own sort of uh, investigation of your own narrative and where mm -hmm. that has come into play as it relates to the educational leader that you are. Um, right. And, and so I want to ask you about your history, but specifically about um, you have this, you talked a little bit about um, a class that you teach called mm -hmm. social justice and educational contexts. And mm -hmm. um, there is this kind of uh, narrative map, I'll say, or a, a visual that in the center is the individual and right. outside of the center are the intersections of history, uh, political influences, biology, and cultural influences. And mm -hmm. I can imagine how this becomes such an interesting conversation with, um, with some of your students, but I wanted to ask you about, uh, your story as it relates to those things and, and, um, some of the ways that you feel like your, uh, history in that culture has influenced what you feel are the most important topics for you to be working on um, in this part of your career? Yeah. Wow. So that uh, that course is is a very important course um, in my own work. I think in the work that we do at Duquesne uh, in preparing uh, equity minded uh, educators um, and. So the, the the work of the individual and and the understanding of of how we do our work, you know, these are well, let me back. These are not things that I have um, come up with, right? These are things in theory that I've read, and most recently I'm influenced by 
community learning exchanges, which is work that I have learned from colleagues, uh, including Miguel Guajardo, Francisco Guajardo, uh, Chris Jansen, and Matthew Militello, uh, and, and Linda Treadway. Um, and what we start uh, in that work around community learning exchanges with really investigating our own stories. And so um, what you named as a part of that inner circle of the individual, uh, the political context, the biological context, um, for example, uh, really shapes who we are fundamentally and our understandings of the world, our mental models of the world. And so if you were to just sort of take a step back and look at Gretchen and look at my narrative, I was born in 1971 um, in in Virginia, um, which if you look historically at 1971, uh, the last school district integrated in Virginia in 1970, Mm. um, which, if you recall, 1954 was Brown v. which said, you know, uh, segregated, separate schools were inherently unequal, right? And then Brown v. the second decision in 55, said you need to integrate schools with all deliberate speed. Mm. And the state of Virginia did not complete integration until I think it was 70, perhaps in seven, early 71. And so that being said, my parents, my father attended segregated schools. My mother actually integrated her high school in 1966. She started in ninth grade. And so their lived experiences, uh, you know, highly influenced my um, beginnings, right? Mm-hmm. How they understood schools and schooling. That That's just the beginning of my history, right? So when my, my mother and father uh, separate and ultimately divorce, my mother moves back to her rural community an hour south of Richmond, and I live with her parents. My brother and I lived with my maternal grandparents until I was going into the third grade. Um, I was raised in an intergenerational household. So I had my mother, my grandparents, great aunts, and great great aunts. I knew three of my great grandmothers, mm. all of which influenced my upbringing and understanding of the world, of rural Virginia, of what it meant to be black, um, what it meant to be um, educated, what it meant to be farmers and live on the land, what it meant to move away from home and to excel and be successful. All of that is connected to my history. My biology, um, again, as an African-American child born in 1971 whose um, birth certificate says Negro, right? That's a part of history, but it's also biological, Mm. right? connected. What does that mean for my development and understanding and opportunities in the world? What does it mean for what's expected of me in schools and, and, and education writ large? You know, so when I give that assignment to my students who 
mostly are 18 and 19 year olds. Um, I've always taught at predominantly white institutions. So the vast majority of my students, and I would say about 98% of my undergraduate students over the last 20 years have been white students. Mm. I would say about uh, 90% of those students have been female. Um, When I ask them to think about their history, their biology, the politics of where they were born, all of those things, I am asking them to look deeply at how who they are, where they were born, who their parents are, all of those things greatly shapes their understanding of the world uh, and how they enter into educational systems and all systems for that matter, right? Hmm. Um, And then move out of that um, analysis of self into um, a systemic discussion about how um, the organizations in which we then are are involved in, such as church, right? School is one, right? Because I'm in the school of education, we're preparing educators. But how does how do organizations like churches? How do organizations like uh, um, um, uh, other public spaces? So if you're a child that grew up and you were somehow connected to um, a a a a human services center. How does that shape your understanding of the world? How does that under, how does that shape your understanding of the role of education and the role of role of responsibilities of the educator, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to, to students students who don't, right? And so uh, we look at organizations and the influence of organizations and allies, and then we move to communities. Like, what are what is our uh, understanding of community. How do we define community? Uh, how do we uh, work within community and collaborate with community? Um, and so all of those spaces are connected to our understandings of educator. Um, but we start with the place that we know most intimately, right? And at the same time that we're taught uh, in schools not to own and to separate from. Uh, most of our lives, we're told to separate from those uh, stories of self. We're even taught to speak in third person, right? We can't use I in a lot of our work, Hmm. right? But it shapes so much of how we understand the world and our responsibilities and roles in it. uh, You you mentioned in one of your talks that your grandmother had 10 uh, she had ten children. Ten children. Yeah, like gr- grandma. Yeah, like grandma Stiff, Lawrence Stiff. She had ten children, uh, biological children of her own, and and I feel like she was the mother to many others. But yeah, she was the mother of ten. And one of the things that I found so interesting about the story that you told is that um, across these ten children, um, there was. It, it seemed, if I understood you correctly, that uh-huh. there was a tremendous amount of achievement, high, sort of high achievers um, yeah. in those 10 children. And so the, the stories that you have, um, you know, lived through and grappled with um, in, a, in addition to being about those power relationships and um, 
it it's also part of your story is deeply influenced by um, what you saw around you, which it seemed was uh, being able to sort of ascend, you know, th- through through challenge, through uh, tension and and opposition in some cases uh, uh, to two places of power. And so um, you described it in such a way that because or or, and I'm not sure to what degree you were saying this and to what degree I was inferring it. But um, Mm -hmm. it, it felt to me like part of what you were saying was that because that was part of your story, that um, kind of uh, ascending to a place where um, achievement was not only possible, but sort of expected in in right. some ways in, in your unit, um, mm-hmm. that maybe I'm inferring that it made it more possible for you. But but can you say more about that? And, and yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, it makes me think a lot of, um, uh, Marion Wright Edelman has that great quote that I've quoted so many times on this show. Uh, you can't be what you can't see. Um, right. it makes me think about that. I, I had the opportunity to, um, do a moth talk, uh, about my grant, about, uh, about anything I chose to write, mm. to talk about it. And, and in that I, I spoke about my grandmother and, um, and I've written about her quite a bit in my understanding of leadership and my understanding of my responsibilities on the wall. But what I know about my grandmother uh, and from the story she's told and from other stories I've heard from family members and from uh peers and colleagues and people I've met from where I grew up, um, my grandmother's story as a woman who raised her children to excel, who raised her children to be good citizens in the world, um, who loved unconditionally, all of those things um, may seem exceptional to others, but in those communities, it was... um, it happened quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And those are stories of black people from the South who created schools to educate their own, who prepared people for the world and who, and the world at that time and, and continues to be a very uh, unjust world, but who required of their offspring uh, excellence uh, courage, uh, love, uh, hard work. Um, and so what she instilled in her children, uh, and in those who she interacted with was what was instilled in her by her parents and her aunts and uncles, and even, uh, those who, uh, raised those who raised her. And so it is our history as black people in this country, as, as the descendants of slaves uh, in this country, that's where we come from. Unfortunately, it's a story that is often untold. And particularly in the schools, uh, what we learn about segregated schools um, is that they were dilapidated buildings, that they did, they lacked resources, 
Uh, we know all of the things that they did not have. And while in terms of financial resources and lots of other resources, those schools were highly um, underfunded, uh, there were some really amazing things happening in those spaces for students. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you think about the legacy of, of people from the South who have come through segregated schools and, and the things that they achieved. Uh, so my mother's in her late 60s, my aunts and uncles uh, up through their mid-70s, and all of them and all of their peers who grew up in the South who were uh, African-American, most primarily attended segregated schools. And when you look at that generation and the accomplishments of that generation, you you can't help but say, wow, they must have learned something in those schools, mm. right? Yet we don't tell those stories. Um, and I only learned those stories because of the intergenerational conversations I had um, because um, I grew up and lived with my grandparents in those formative years. So many people of my age who were fortunate enough in a lot of ways to attend integrated schools didn't hear those stories. Um, we went into those schools with parents who were figuring out how to advocate for their students, for their kids in integrated settings, despite the fact that they did not attend integrated schools. So that's a huge wealth of information right there. You had parents, black parents advocating for students in integrated settings, which are vastly different from their own schooling experiences. Just just what they were able to do there Um, and conveying to them the importance of achievement. So one of the things that my mother always taught me um, as, as my responsibility was that school was my work. Right. So she would go to work and she would get paid, but school was the work I did. Right. And that um, that understanding of myself as 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 a as a worker, right, has had lots of benefits for me, although I would also say there have been some some issues with that as well, right? right? Being able to take care and put things down. But my mother taught me what she learned and that was that you work hard and from working hard you will achieve. Um and when things were unjust, and one of the stories that I often tell in class was um, I was in the fourth grade. I remember this. I was in my new school in fourth grade, and, and this setting was predominantly white, and it was the first school that I attended that was predominantly white, uh, unlike where I went to school in rural Virginia, which was predominantly black. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this integrated setting, I got all A's and a B, and the B was in conduct. Um, and so my mother was like, "What are you doing? Like, you you are you acting up in in class? Like, what's wrong?" And so she makes um, a, an appointment to see the teacher, and the teacher says to her, "Oh, well, Gretchen's doing just fine, you know." I I just, I mean, I'm sure she'll figure this out, but, you know, she's just a bit eager. And so my mom said, what do you mean she's eager? 
What does that mean? And so the teacher went on to explain that if I knew the answer, I would raise my hand and go, oh, me, 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 like, please call mm-hmm. on me. Because oftentimes I was not being called on. And so the teacher saw that as being disruptive. And so my mother said, okay, thank you. She leaves and she, as we're driving home, she says, you know what, Gretchen, it is perfectly fine to get B's in conduct in the fourth grade. (laughs) Actually, it's like getting an A. Right. Right. And so my mother, again, you know, as, as a very young mother understood that for this teacher, like she just, for me being this type of student in our classroom, it, it wasn't going to stop me from loving school, from loving the process of learning. And she didn't want to silence me in that way. And so those kinds of lessons um, over and over and over again taught me that injustice was real, that people were not going to uh, necessarily appreciate what I brought to the table, uh, what I brought to learning, but that I had every right to be there and that I had every right to show up as I was. Mm. And my mother as a very, I mean, my mother was 18 years old when she had me. So you figure when I'm in the fourth grade, she's not, I mean, she's like 27 years old. She's young. Mm. And she says to this, to this, uh, you know, older white teacher, okay, thank you, walks out and says to me, you keep getting bees. Mm. That's huge, right? But she learned that. And that to me is what I talk about around leadership as well. How do we talk about that as a way of leading and teaching and, and, and helping people understand their their agency, mm. right? And their capacity to change things. Um, and so I, I would say while my grandparents um, taught us lots of lots of things. They got that from their community. They got that from um, a, a legacy of of greatness that we just don't hear enough about. Um, and and those stories are being lost. You know, I am working on a project to collect some of the stories of segregated um, high schools in the state of Virginia, because we're losing those stories. Mm -hmm. And um, so much of what's embedded in those stories uh, are those things are instructive about how to deal with the times we currently live in as it relates to education, the the times we currently live in politically. Um, There is lots of uh, strategy, lots of, um, resiliency, lots of lessons that can help us um, move through the current uh, inequitable systems that we face. So I want to, I want to um, come back to that, but I, I as you're mm-hmm. telling that story, um, I'm a parent, I have three kids. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I know you have two, uh, you have a son, William, um, right. who I hope we're going to, we're going to bring back with you on this show. Oh, um, great. And I don't know your, your second child. 
Her name's Gabrielle. Gabrielle. Um, yeah. So, so I was wondering as you're telling that story about, um, uh, the, the, it being perfectly okay to, um, Mm -hmm. to be, uh, what would now be needs work, um, Mm -hmm. in, in that area. I wondered, you know, have you thought about what those story stories are, um, with your own kids and what are, um, you know, I was, uh, having this conversation with a friend of mine, uh, last Mm -hmm. week who, uh, and I was, I was describing my conversation. Um, she was asking what I was, what I was prepping for. And, and, um, I was describing the conversation that you and I were going to have. And, um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, both of us were sort of agreeing, but she, she made the great point that, you know, um, we had, previously in the conversation been saying that uh, we both work in education and it uh, presents this interesting um, dilemma uh, when mm-hmm. you walk into your, your own children's classrooms, um, mm. striking that balance between um, being somebody who knows, but uh, isn't perceived yes. to know more than anybody else. And um, mm-hmm. you know, it's, 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 an interesting tension that arises. And so I have so many questions I want to ask you about (laughs) raising your own kids. We're not going to have time for it today, but, uh, but I do, I do wonder um, if I could ask one question, it would, it would just be Uh to um, describe for me a little bit uh, what's, what it was like uh, bringing your, you're almost through bringing your uh, kids through school oh. systems, right? And, um, yeah. and I wonder what that's been like for you. And um, are there stories where you realized that things have changed, but maybe not so much? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, my dissertation, I talk about, um, Deborah McDowell talks about the changing fame. <laughs> mm. And um, there are so many uh, instances. Uh, my, my son William will be going into the 11th grade. Gabrielle is going into the sixth grade this mm. year. And there's so many uh, times when I walk in and I am humbled by the enormity of what teachers have to do. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but then I'm also um, so saddened by um, what they are not able to do. And I uh, equate a lot of what they're not able to do to their own lack of uh, preparation and training. Uh, and resources around these things that we talked about before. That's a deep analysis of self, understandings of organizations, and the greater uh, role and responsibility towards community. Um, And again, that aligns with my own philosophy of education, but it also, I think, highly connects to a lot of the language that we use in education around, you know, um, all children exceeding, you know, excellence for all kids, Mm. you know, all of those things. Right. Um, but for my own kids, you know, sending, sending as a, as a 
as a parent of black children, sending my kids to a school um, in a district that's predominantly white, and my husband and I chose the district uh, intentionally. We made those um, that decision, in part because no decision for black parents in schooling is an easy one, mm. right? And you, in some ways, you pick uh, the lesser of evils in the system. Um, and we chose a predominantly white uh, environment for our kids in schools. Um, and even then, I cringe um, knowing that I'm sending them in some instances and in what I acknowledge that could be seen as harm's way. Mm. And um, I'm not talking like physical harm, um, but I think of spiritual and psychological harm. And what my husband and I both do is to do a lot of engaging at home. Uh, in the same way that my mother did for me, when she said to me, Gretchen, it's good to get bees mm. and conduct in the fourth grade. She was navigating a system that she knew was inherently racist, right? That's what I teach my kids to do every day. Mm. And from very early on, they know that things are not fair. They know that teachers uh, may not like them. Uh, and quite frankly, we talk about we don't care if the teacher likes them, that what we want most is for the teacher to be fair and consistent and for them to work hard in their classrooms. Um, we will deal with a teacher who you feel like doesn't quote unquote like you, right? Um, but we have had very difficult conversations with our kids about uh, how educational systems uh, will see them. And, and we don't question whether or not school systems see them that way. Um, even if our kids are the exception, right? Uh, we know how systems see black children. And we want them to understand that they are in that system, even if they, you know, are the ones that are like, right, even if they're the ones who have resources to be mindful of how black children and black people are uh, treated. And so um, I have many stories that uh, we talk about at home. Uh, my husband and I have had cause to go in and meet with administrators um, and to outline some of the things that we expect for all black children in the systems. Mm. Um, but it is, it is a daily um, discussion with our kids. It is a constant, um, a constant, um, how would I say? I think I have developed a lot more spiritually as a parent than I could have ever imagined. Mm. <laughs> um, because you, you, it is, it is a huge responsibility, and um, it is just so hard to know uh, how people perceive your children. Um, I can remember one of the times that was most. Um, I think most difficult for me was my son was going into the fifth grade. I think it was going into fifth grade when Trayvon Martin, when the when the verdict for Trayvon Martin came down, mm. and he was devastated. 
because he knew enough about the legal system and the Constitution. And, you know, my husband's a lawyer, so we had talked, you know, he'd heard us talking about certain things. And he was still idealistic and just could not imagine that um, that um, the verdict would come back as innocent. He didn't understand how that could happen. And he, he um, came to me uh, when he saw the verdict with tears in his eyes and was like, I just don't understand. I just don't understand. And um, I was out of town. I was in Virginia, actually, with the children. And we had to get on a conference call with my husband and have a conversation about how these things happen with our, you know, nearly 10-year-old. And that's what you do, right? And so those things, those big things happen, things happen like that in in this classroom. Uh, William is at an age now where he's learned uh, how to advocate for himself within this system. Um, He created a Black Student Union at his school uh, last year, which is the first in the district ever, and he did that not knowing what the response would be, but feeling very, but adamantly feeling that there needed to be a space for black children and black, and, and black students in that school to, to be able to talk about issues that directly affected them. And I know that has come from our conversations about education, about schools, about the world, uh, and, and how... Uh, he's impacted by it. So, you know, the stories um, are are about the reality of our children's lives. And our children live a privileged life, right? And so we also teach them very much about what that means to Mm -hmm. have certain privileges uh, and the responsibility to community that ensues with that. Um, And again, these are all lessons that I learned uh, from my grandparents, from my great-grandparents, from my, my own mom, um, that are part of our legacy, part of our heritage. And the same is true for my husband as well. Um, and, and what I've learned is that I want, even through all of these issues that I have to prepare my kids to deal with, you know, William has just recently got his license. So we talk about what does it mean to drive as a black black man, you know, driving, like, here's what you do. Mm-hmm. This is how you respond if you're ever pulled over, you know, those real conversations. Um, but to have those conversations and prepare your kids for the reality of the world and how the world may treat him, but to also teach him how to love, right? And to, to be open to the greatness and the wonders of the world as well. Um, which is also can can also be a challenge when you're teaching people to be critical of the things that are around them. Hmm. Coming back to something you said, you said um, raising your kids and going through this experience has made you um, helped you grow spiritually as a parent. And I, um, I wonder what you meant by that. Um, I I gathered it to mean. Um, patience, maybe, um, mm-hmm. uh, empathy, kindness, uh, but tell, yeah. tell me what you did mean. Yeah. So 
the way in which I understand my spirituality is also rooted uh, in the community that shaped me. Um, one of the things I talked about in the moth talk that I gave was how my grandmother uh, took care of herself, right? Um, and one of the things that she did consistently was to have a connection uh, with a higher being and to have quiet time. You know, we talk about it as mindfulness, mm -hmm, right? But mm -hmm. I recall my grandmother every day spending time. Uh, she she was a Christian and she read her Bible or she listened to music or she if she didn't have music, she hummed, right? She worked in the garden. Like she did things that were her own things that gave her her own time. And mm. a day when she didn't have much time. You can imagine, right? She she didn't have much uh, time to herself. Um, but she always found moments alone to be quiet. And um, as a mother who works, as a mother who's actively involved uh, in her kids' school and in the community and all those things, there were moments when I lost connection with uh, myself and with my own spirituality and certainly with a higher uh, being, right? Uh, where I did not take the time to, to sort of quiet my mind and to focus in on the things that were and are important. Um, and so when I say parenting made me do that, uh, I feel like my kids asking me very difficult questions Mm. Right. Reminded me that I needed to sit still and really think about this from where they were sitting. Right. Like not from my theoretical space, you know, as a professor or how I might teach this right, to a doctoral student, but really meeting my kids where they are yep. and helping them understand it from their own context. And that meant I had to stop. I had to slow down. And I had to really be in that moment. And one of the things I can remember Gabrielle um, saying to me one day, she was saying something, and I said, okay, I hear you. And she said something again, and I said, Gabrielle, I hear you. And she said, Mom, no, you don't. You know, and I said, okay. So I just stopped. I put everything down, and I sat down, and I said, okay, let's talk. Mm. And whatever that means, because I know like when I say I'm sending my kids out in harm's way, I, they have to know that when they come to me, when they come to my husband, when they come to our space, that they they are being heard, right? And that they are being attended to and that they have and will always have the support that they need because that's how I felt. Even as a kid growing up who didn't have a lot of financial resources, I was very confident and that I had adults who listened to me. I had adults who supported me. Right? And I had adults who would make sure that I was going to be all right. And that's what um, 
I mean by having kids making me slow down because what kids need today, I think is different than what I needed. <laughs> I mean, a lot of it is the same, right? You know, love and blah, blah, blah. But there's some different things that kids need right now. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm trying to figure those, I'm, I'm constantly asking them certain things and constantly trying to um, learn about their world because it is, it is different. The technology has made it a bit different. Uh, from what I experienced as a kid, and and trying to 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 keep their innocence at a time when they know so much, uh, and at the same time are developmentally uh, naive and young. Hmm. So that in that sense, parenting has made me um, connect more with myself spiritually, and and I also think parenting and and I know Mark, I think we had a conversation about this. Parenting has made me a better teacher in mm. the classroom, right? So um, I, I've always known that my students mattered and that their stories matter, right? But I think it was parenting that really helped me understand the significance and the great importance of meeting all students where they are, yeah. even if that student is 50 years old, right, which is a challenge, right? Even if that student's 55 years old, even if that student has power and authority in their school district, right? If they are my student, right, it matters that I meet them where they are. Mm-hmm. If I believe they have the capacity to learn and grow and develop still, um, which is is what my 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 kids and parenting has, has taught me. Um, so, and that that that's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I would imagine there are um, there are uh, many hopeful moments. But mm-hmm. if uh, you're anything like uh, me, dotted <laughs> dotted consistently by moments of yeah, of uh, right. despair and um, and doubt and uh, that's right, you know, just wondering whether, and failure, whether, yeah, right. So it's doubt, it's all that. But then I also fail, right? Mm-hmm. So because I can, I can need someone where they are, but they can also be resistant to learning. Right. Sure. And, and that, that part is real with, with adult learners, right. With adults. Um, they, especially for adults who have some power, who are privileged, um, who decide that community really is about individualism, uh, which when when adults believe that justice is idealism, right, is not actually something that can be achieved. Mm. Right? These are all things the opposite of, of what I believe, right? And so I can meet them there, but they can be staunchly against uh, what I'm attempting to teach. What are some of the other um, things that you see come up 
with uh, those leaders um, that you're teaching who are further along in their career. Uh, mm-hmm. You mentioned justice being um, idealism, and and um, I wonder what are what are the other are there other things that come up regularly off the top of your head that are um, the things that that really make it just maybe they consistently surprise you or uh, right. consistently don't. Um, right. So, so one of the stories from when I or in my early teaching was of a young woman. This is when I was on the faculty at Virginia Tech and I was teaching in a master's program and teachers were getting their certificates, uh, their license to teach. And there was a young woman in the class, and this class was uh, a multicultural class, and I did a lot of work, not unlike the social justice and educational context course. Um, and and the student was really, um, there, the class had created a lot of dissonance for the student, and she was really grappling with that individual work. Mm. And one day after class, she came up to me uh, with tears in her eyes. Um, and this is a white student, um, middle-class student who, you know, gone through everything in school, had, you know, done all of the things that she was told to do to be successful and was going to be a teacher and was going to give back to the community. And she came to it to tears in her eyes and she said, my father is a good person. And I looked at her, I was like, of course, like what, what, what do you mean? Like, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've never met your father. Yes. And she said, I don't like this class because when I'm listening to this class, I feel like you said my father is not a good person. Mm. And, um, I said to her, I said, that's not my intention. Um, and I said, I am working from an understanding of how systems impact particular people. And, you know, I gave her some like theoretical response and, you know, she walked out and she was so very upset. And I went home that day and I was Mark, I was like, it sat with me so long. Like Mm. I knew in that moment that my response was not okay. And I felt like I had um, essentially, you know, taken my students up, in an airplane and push them out, out of the plane with no parachute, mm-hmm. right, to land, right? Like I had basically created all this dissonance in her world and had figured out as an educator how to help her put that back together mm-hmm. in a way that allowed her to go and do the good work that she, that I believe she intended to do. Um, and so fast forward, maybe like, three years later, I get an email from this same student and she says, I was Dr. Gibbons at the time, she said, Dr. Gibbons, I get it. I finally understand what you were talking about. And wow. she gave me this long email. Um, but, and that was really, um, that was a okay moment, like that was, oh, thank goodness moment for me. But in that time, in that moment, I was so um, 
I was upset with my not being able to, at that time, in my own understanding of curriculum design, how to support the student. Mm. Um, and so I, I have learned, you know, like over the years, how to do that more. And I know I've gotten better at that. Um, but those are the challenges, right? Because when you're talking about equity and when you're talking about injustice and you're talking about those things in a system where, you know, 99% of the people who I work with uh, have the skin privilege, right, of the system, um, even if they don't have the economic privilege of it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so that's that's one piece, right? How how do you how do you meet those students where they are as as a black woman, right? And and to do it in a way that says we need you to understand what the system does. Like it's not like we can say like so I have some colleagues that are like I'm not you know like I'm not going to deal with white people who are not ready to learn this. Mm. And I'm like yeah, but I don't think we can afford that, <laughs> you know like. I think ultimately, you know, we have to absolutely educate uh, people of color indeed, but we also need to uh, figure out how to better educate uh, white people, well-intentioned white people, white people who understand that if the system does not work for the least amongst us, that it also harms those who are privileged in it, mm -hmm. you know, like that, that is, that is critical. Like we actually harm white students by creating a system that disenfranchises black and brown students. Right. And until people understand that, right, um, this won't get better. And, and we can list a myriad of ways that, you know, white students are being harmed and our educational system as well. But we can't talk about that because our system um, is, is so bent on making sure that not everybody has equitable opportunity. Mm -hmm. Do you feel at all like... Um... Now is the time where we're finally, and maybe this is too hopeful, but um, mm. now is the time where we're actually paying better attention as a system within a country to the things we did wrong in the fifties mm. and sixties um, with uh integrating schools. I remember, I remember the, um, the first time I really dug into, I, I made the realization of what kind of mistake was made then when, um, uh, there was a, a good story that I'll, I'll link to in the show notes. Um, but on mm -hmm. his podcast, um, revisionist history, Malcolm Gladwell did a story mm. that revolved around, uh, it was a series of stories, but one of them revolved around, uh, schools in, I believe Kansas. And, and he told a mm -hmm. little bit of this story about how, um, 
there were there were uh, these just some wonderful schools that were being closed in favor of schools that were actually not performing as well, um, mm-hmm. and and doing this completely not even half baked job of thinking about what this meant to um, to to culture you know to undo the the mistakes of the system in, you know, sort of overnight in a way. Um, do you feel at all like maybe the, the arc of this story is so long that it's, it's really just now that we're in it, that we're, that we're actually as leaders in education charged with, um, making those things right and figuring out how do we, how do we do this? It's, uh, a, um, a crazy task to think about doing, uh, you know, sort of backing into it after all of this time. But, Mm -hmm. but do you, do you feel it all that way? Like, like that's the work we're doing. We're actually still picking up pieces from the fifties and sixties. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that, that's really, I mean, that's the work, right? <laughs> um, we are constantly, uh, to use a phrase you, you use, taking up pieces. We're constantly um, trying to include people to make sure that people have access and opportunity. We're constantly trying to address a debt. Uh, in education, I mean, that's Gloria Latson-Billing talks about the achievement debt and not the achievement gap, right? And so we're constantly uh, swimming upstream Mm -hmm. um, in that regard with our students, um, with our communities. Um, Do I think we're getting better at it? I don't know. Like, I I struggle with that. Yeah. I really struggle with that. You know, I, I, I know um, that there are people doing some extraordinary work. You know, they're doing it in Pittsburgh. I'm sure they're doing it in your community. You're doing it like there are people doing it, right? Um, is it enough to address the systemic um, issues that plague uh, the American educational system? I don't know. Um when I got into education, um, you know, I thought that I, I was never thought we would be where we are in education uh, in the United States mm. when I first got into education 20 years ago. I, I would have never thought we would be more racially segregated. Mm. I was never thought there would still be the the haves and the have-nots to the extent that they are. Um, there were lots of things that I thought we would have moved the needle further on. Mm. Not that we would have solved them, but that we would be a lot further, you know, along the path to creating more access and opportunity for students. Yeah. Um, I would have thought that curriculums would have looked differently. I would have thought that testing 
would be a lot differently, like learn how we assess, let me put it down, how we assess students would have been different. You know, I would have, uh, when I was reading John Dewey, I just thought, you know, like this was written in the early 1900s, mm-hmm. 1930s, like we're going to be a lot further, right? You know, we've had a lot more time to, to understand how this works. And I, I unfortunately uh, believe that we're not as far along on that path as I thought we would be. Yeah. Now, that's not to say that my children's generation won't be the ones to do it, right? Yeah. Um, I am very hopeful for the next generation. Um, I think they are brilliant in ways that my generation uh, is not. Uh, I think they're fearless in ways that my generation is not. Um, again, I'm, uh, for me, the outlier is the technology. And I know you've done a lot of work on this, but the access around technology, mm. I think, will, will be is still a wild card. Like that piece, I don't know. Um, but I'm hopeful with them. Um, but I, I, my generation did not, has not gotten, and we still have some more work to do, but my generation has not gotten where I thought we would. Yeah. I I worry sometimes when I'm uh I am also hopeful but uh mm-hmm. I think looking back on where I started in this work I definitely um mm-hmm. something something you just said rings rings very true for me where where mm-hmm. I'll I'll go to bed uh wondering what generation I'm I'm actually putting in the work for um Right. The, the older right. older my kids get, and um, the more uh, you know, more conversations I have with with my kids' principals, and and uh, just realizing how far we are from um, from some of the ideals that we've talked for a long time about. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, and uh, you know, I think I'm okay with that. Uh, it just takes some, some coming to terms with, you know, cause, cause you, right, I think when you right. first start out, you really think, you know, I'm, I'm doing this work for my kids' generation. Um, right. That's but, right. uh, then you blink and they're, uh, thinking about college or whatever, what, you know, you're, you have right. one in 11th grade. Um, All right. Well, I, I wanted to add, I, I went to the university of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and, and I can remember one night sitting on the back steps in the um, School of Education there, Peabody Hall, with one of my colleagues, Sophia Viennes. And I said to her, I said, Sophia, our students will be ha- our kids, I said, our children will be having the same conversations that we're having. Mm. Like, I remember saying that to her. Mm. And that may have been like in, you know, 1995, 1996. Um, but what's interesting is, is that while, I know, like, while I believe that our kids would be having the same conversations around justice, I, I really did think we would be much further along. You know, I, I, did, I didn't think we would still be having conversations about political correctness, right? You know, like, yeah. having conversations about people's humanity. Yeah. And, um, you know, like, that piece is, you know, like, that part is um, very sad to me that we are in 2018 and we still, there, 
we still treat people in inhumane ways and that we do that um, in our, you know, in our, in the world at large, but in the ways in which we do that in school systems is so uh, problematic to me. Yeah. Um, so I do, I, I have one question that I want to just ask you quickly a, a few uh a few questions for the folks who listen to the show regularly and are going to listen to uh this this conversation and wonder when i'm going to mm-hmm. get to the part about um learning with technology um <laughs> but, but um so so let me ask this and then i'll get to that so um mm-hmm. one of the one of the reasons I was so excited to talk to you is that uh, in the last couple of years, as you know, um, as I'm, I'm, I'm guessing you know, I don't want to presume, but uh, Dr. Chris mm-hmm. Emden, he wrote this book right. for white folks who teach in the hood and the rest of y'all too. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And I'll, I'll read a quote from that book, which, which I think we've been mm-hmm. uh, talking a little bit about. He says, uh, students quickly receive the message that they can only be smart when they are not who they are. This in many ways is Mm -hmm. classroom colonialism, and it can only be addressed Mm -hmm. through a very different approach to teaching and learning. Um, Mm -hmm. And and you've been talking about this idea for a very long time. And um, part of the the reason... um, it it doesn't make it, by the way, less um, less important. You know, uh, uh, I, I'm guessing you would agree that uh, mm-hmm. it. You know, whatever young scholar comes up, uh, you know, after uh, any of us uh, who needs mm-hmm. to restate a thing we've been saying for a long time, it doesn't make it right. less less important. Um, sure. So so, but the reason that I think this is so important is that. Um, there's this conversation that that uh, for me personally is that there's there's a conversation uh, that I've been very engaged with and and you know many in the field have been sort of wrapped up in in the conversation around STEM learning and mm-hmm. um, and computer science education and and what it means to be equitable in the digital age however however you right. define that and. We could have a whole other conversation about um, equity uh, in in a digital age and, and what that means in different terms, right? There's there's um, you know uh, what what kind of um, access to information is is backed up to different schools. There's what right. kind of learning experience, digital learning experiences kids are having. Uh, there are all these things, but. Um, but one of the reasons that I find this conversation we're having to be that I've been sort of looking for this conversation in, in a way is that STEM educators have been talking about this, um, this equity and uh, the, you hear the phrase broadening participation a lot. And mm-hmm. I, I think at its root, what broadening participation is about um, has shares its sort of first principles in these ideas that we've been talking about for an hour, the, the idea that, um, we can find practices as educators and leaders in, um, science education and and technology education 
that help every student feel like the path to agency and contribution through these things um, is is not um, not theirs, right? Um, right. And so, so the the question that I've been wanting to ask you about uh, computer, you know, there's there. I'm I'm guessing you've been following all of the. Um, uh, the education is not an industry or a or a professional community that is um, uh, immune <laughs> to mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. jargon and buzz the way that every other right. uh, professional world <laughs> is right. right. And so we've been so wrapped up in this stuff of of STEM right. education and and obsessed with the idea that that we um, deliver education in a way that uh, is sort of meant for the digital age. But my question for you is, is there any difference for computer science or STEM educators than there is for any other education leader? Mm. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's a, Mark, that's a great question. And I appreciate you asking that question. It reminds me of a conversation I had with someone probably within the last week where I said, you know, if, if I were a student now and all of the STEM stuff was being pushed down my throat, I would die mm. <laughs> because I was a reader. I was a writer. You know, I was a dreamer in a different kind of way. Yeah. And as a student, if my, if, if, if all of my teachers were saying that in order for me to be successful, I had to uh, figure out how to go into STEM, uh, to a STEM field. I would have a really hard time. And I don't know if the joy of learning would be there in the same way. Yeah. Um, you know, that being said, you know, I go back to these stories and narratives uh, from these segregated schools in the South, and and I'm most familiar with the ones in Virginia, and what I know is that those schools educated a generation of doctors, of scientists, you know, of of engineers, you know, of 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 critically of critical thinkers in a way that you know um, contributed to science, to technology, engineering, and math. Uh, from our communities. And so, um, and as a matter of fact, I was at a banquet honoring some of um, our elders from Virginia who were being inducted into a Hall of Fame uh, for segregated black schools in Virginia. And I met uh, Marcus Martin, who is the chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Virginia. Mm. He's retiring. He had this long, you know, story, but he came up in those schools and segregated black schools and integrated North Carolina State University. And his story, again, there are all these stories of black men and, and women who came through that, who did it. And, and that came from good teaching, right? That came from a sense of community, it came from people who taught them how to work hard and who cared about them, who supported them, 
they always he he talked about knowing that he could come back home and that people would be there for him. Um, you know, so I I don't think we talk about leadership and training and all of these things differently for science educators, right? I think we talk about it uh, in very student-centered ways. You know, how do you build relationship with students so that they can see themselves in a science field um, if that's where they want to be? You know, how do you cultivate a love of learning in a science field in ways that allow them to, in, to, to, to integrate their story with stories that came before them? Mm. Um, you know, like, how do you connect their current lived situation with the history of science in their community? You know, so I, I, I don't think it's different. I think it goes back to some pretty core principles around teaching. And I appreciate Chris Endem's work because I think, you know, he's getting at how you do that for this generation, mm. which might look, which, you know, may have looked a little bit different from my generation. But the important piece that I understand in his work is you meet kids where they are and you talk about them being excellent. And you help them connect their excellence to the content that you're attempting to teach. You allow them to tell their stories and to connect and integrate their stories with the larger story around that content. Yeah. Um, and so I don't, I, 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 I understand it that way. And he's doing that through hip hop and, and things in, in that fashion, which I applaud him for. Yeah. But the reality is, is that's, that's also not going to reach all kids in the same way. Mm-hmm. Right. And so if you're wanting to get students, you've got to figure out how to reach them and to see that as your job and responsibility, not in saying to kids, here is where I am. Come over here with me, which is what I see a lot of educators doing. Follow the rules. This is the policy. You come over here and meet me here. Yeah. So, um, but, but I could imagine that growing up in this day and age, even if I am a, a writer and a reader in a different kind of way, that if I had a science teacher that met me there, that I would have a much greater appreciation. Yeah. For science. Yeah. Right. And I think that's important. And I will have a much greater appreciation for how it has the possibility to change the world in more just ways. Right? That's the opportunity. Right? But it's not to make every kid an engineer. Yeah. Every kid doesn't want to be an engineer. Yeah. Right? It's not to make every kid, you know, be the next um, Bill Gates. That's not what every kid wants to be. Mm-hmm. Do you have one of the um, one of the phenomena that I see a lot is how the inequities in um, the tech sector play out in the makeup of who then gets to teach STEM and teach computer science, right. yeah. and I wonder. 
I have had conversations with with peers and colleagues, um, and sometimes they worry. I think that um, educators uh, who who are white or any educator who is coming into a context that's not um, necessarily their own, um, I've heard them worry about whether they're doing the right thing or whether they're doing good. And I think it's, I think it's an important question, but I wonder, we could have a long conversation about this, but I, but I wonder if you have, um, I think in, I wonder if you have words of encouragement, um, for those educators and I know that, um, I know, for example, that uh, when you talk about um, lead- education leaders who uh, where social justice um, is a strength, you have these three, uh, at least, and uh, I wonder if these have changed, but in 2012, you had these three really specific um uh, sort of skills or dispositions. Uh, you mm-hmm. describe them as being uh, transformational public intellectuals, uh, bridge people, which I'll let you mm-hmm. explain, and uh, critical activists. And um, mm-hmm. I wonder if if you feel like uh, maybe that's a place to start um, for educators who are, um, you know, wanting to give back and also do it to be most effective in their, in their work, know that they need to do it in a culturally uh, responsive and responsible way. Um, Right. Is this a place to start? Yeah, I I think so. Um, So, so I think one of the ways in which, white supremacy harms white people is that the notion that uh, white people are always right or have to be right. And this, this, this need for perfectionism, right? Which means that when you're working in these spaces that are, that might cause some dissonance for you or that, might be particularly challenging from uh, a a cultural standpoint. Um, It's really hard, right, to be right the vast majority of the time and to be perfect. (laughs) And so um, part of the encouragement I would give folks attempting to do this work from that those spaces is to recognize that it is a learning process and a learning journey and that it is quite the opposite of how you have come through and understood yourself as a learner and what you're striving to be in in an educational system. Um, Part of the transformation is to be much more community oriented and a lot less individualistic in your approach to getting it right, right? So it's not how do I get this right? It's like, how do we get this right? Hmm. 
you know, how do we do this better? Not how do I do it, right? Because it is always, when you're working for justice, it is always a community project, right? You, you, the, the opposite is to come in and be the savior or the colonializer and say, this is what you do. I have the answer. Mm. And so part of transforming is to understand yourself as part of a larger community, you know, a greater community. Um, the, the, the notion of being bridge people is, you know, really this idea of, um, I go back to the student who said, my father's a good person, right? It is how do you um, bring along, right, generations whose story might be quite different from your own, whose understanding of the world is, is different from your own, who, where you might be, you know, they may look at you and think that you're absolutely insane, even though you're part of their family. Like, how do you bridge and bring along people in your, in, in, in your family, in your community? You know, this work starts around kitchen tables, you know, um, and you can't, how can, uh, I, I often ask my students, how can I believe that you have, you can be a part of my community and work in my community if you haven't figured out how to be in your own? Hmm. Or at least to bring some folks along, right? Like, how, do you, how, how does that work? And, and, and this notion of... Um, public activism um, really is, I've, I've come to understand that more for, in, a, in a different way. Um, and, and in that way, I credit it a lot to the community learning exchange work that I've done. Um, this public activist is really about being willing to be a public learner, to learn in public, uh, to, to acknowledge uh, places where you still need to learn and to be okay with that uh, and to, 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 to include yourself in a greater community where everyone is learning still. Um, and, and together, again, we go back to this transformational and being together, we'll figure this out. Mm. But so often our learning is private, you know, uh, I, I might talk about this with my son, um, I'm like, so do you all get together and work? And it's like, yeah, but it's more like a competition, you know, we're trying to see who gets the best grade, you know, mm. it, it is, it is quite, we, we learn to compete. We learn to figure it out for ourselves. We don't commit to this public learning, which then makes it really hard for us to show up in public and, and advocate in certain ways because we, we haven't had practice in that. Mm. You know, we haven't practiced putting what we know out there, right, in a way that talks about it as a journey and a process and contextual, right? Yeah. Um, so, so, so that part, um, I, I would say, it's really about being a public learner and moving that work forward. Um, but I think it's also, you know, really um, challenging yourself. You know, like. If, if, if this is the work you intend to do, 
And if this is the work, if this is your heart's desire, right? Do that work around, you know, the individual. Like, what is it about your own understanding of politics, biology, history, the sociological? Like, what is your own understanding for you? What's made you want this? And then how have the organizations you who have impacted upon you influenced that? And to look for that as a source of strength. You know, one of the things, one of the gifts the legacy of my family has given me, and I didn't always understand it this way, right? It was just, you know, it just was. But one of the gifts is the power of that story, the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? To tell, to, and to be instructive for me as an educator and as a leader. And that doesn't mean that everything in the story is great. You know, there are really some, some, some sad moments and some awful moments. But how do you use that towards working for the outcomes and the justice that you want in your own, in your own work? You know, how do you use that to elevate the work you intend to do? And I think so often... Um, we try to run away from those things mm. and, and recast those things and not think of them as instructive or be really ashamed of those things. Right. And I think they are instructive. Right? Uh, and the more we own our stories and tell our stories, the more humane we're able to treat others because we tell them that their story matters as well. Right. And um, I think then we open up the possibilities for see, for people to see where they enter into spaces where they have previously been denied, right? Because they didn't know where they could show up. They didn't know how to get into that. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I would encourage people to, you know, to dare to, to step into it and, and to, to find their support, to, to think of it as a learning process, to know they're going to fail and then get up and do it again, you know. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But I think it's, it's important to, to not feel like when you step out, you know, so you, it's got to be all right, you know, and to support other people. You know, if, if they're not, in, if you're working in a space and you think there should be more people of color, then how do you make that happen? Right? And, and I can't tell you, like, if I'm not in your community, if I'm not in your context, if I'm not in your school, but whatever it is, I can't tell you how to do that. But it's important that you ask yourself a question and then figure out how to find the resources and the support, whether they're people, whether they're how you do it. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think a lot of times we say, oh, they're not enough, you know, and fill in the blank. Oh, I wish there were more and fill in the blank, right? Instead of thinking as a, of ourselves as having the information, the power, the wherewithal to start a ball rolling so that whatever that blank is that needs to be filled in there can actually happen. Yeah. Um, I think that we're, we're not, um, I, I don't, I guess it's somewhat controversial for uh, a mm-hmm. you know somebody who whose day job is in uh, 
STEM education and and computing and and uh, and advocating for that work um, to mm-hmm. to say that um, I I don't think we're doing our work responsibly if we're not asking the question of whether these things as whether it's as subjects or practices or or um, or ways that we're painting them as a pathway to uh, change cycles of poverty or or however we're framing them, uh, if we're not asking the question of whether they're an, another, um, you know, we we started with the Chris Emden quote about um, kind of colonizing the classroom. Um, I think if we're not being critical about whether the approaches to delivering these things are an, another uh, mechanism for colonizing, then we're not being responsible. Um, but your your really good advice, it seems, is um, to not not go into that thinking uh, you're gonna succeed right away or have the right answer right away. Uh, that, That's right. That we're gonna one of the stories that I love when you were telling, uh, in some of the research that I was doing is the story you told about, um, your grandmother hanging laundry and, uh, mm-hmm. and putting up rows and rows of laundry. And, and when one got heavy, it, it fell and, uh, you know, right. having to do it again and, and hang it again. Right. And, <laughs> Um, right. There's something so simple, but but really uh, profound about that, and I think uh, mm-hmm. you know educators need to be reminded um, that uh, we. I think you you use the phrase "learning in public," and I think that's such a great way to put it. Um, mm-hmm. um, Gretchen, I can't thank you enough. I have way more questions still that I didn't get to ask, but right, this has but been so fun. I really appreciate I, the um, opportunity, like, and your patience. Oh <laughs> my goodness. For setting this date and making it happen. Thank uh, you. Absolutely. And, and I do hope, uh, we had toyed with the idea of, um, doing another episode where, uh, we can, we can have some conversation with, um, with your son, and yeah, yeah, I think that would be instructive I uh, would, for for I, both of us. <laughs> I would adore that. I yeah. you know, just just yeah. to to have some conversation and uh maybe in that episode we can dig more into uh technology and learning uh because I'm I'm yeah, curious yeah. how he um how he sees uh the the digital world as as um as a learner and as yeah. uh a young i always say that uh young people are much more naturally activists than they are um, yes. technologists yes. or uh mathematicians or anything else um and and so i'm sure that that uh whether he's uh proactively an activist or, or has the ideas, uh, I'm, I'm sure he's got a lot to say and I would love to, uh, to have a three-way conversation. So maybe we can do that soon. Um, yeah. in the meantime, I took so much from this and, and I really can't thank you enough, um, for yeah, taking you. so I, much of your I time to do same. it. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for your work, Mark. Dr. Gretchen Gibbons-Generette. Did I get your whole name right? You did. <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> thank you so yes. much for joining. Thank you. You have a great one. 
For more info about advertising with us, charitable sponsorship, or if you have show ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode zero, an Ithaca bomber, an engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No such thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org. This show would not be possible without the support from the good people at Mouse, a national youth development nonprofit that believes in technology as a force for good. Find us online at mouse.org.